What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Belongs to me. Get out my world. It belongs to me. I just do the best I can. Hi, welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to all things Doctor Who. I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I am Kelvin. And we are, as you can hear from our gravelly voices, <laughs> three. Middle-aged Doctor Who fans who love the classic Doctor Who series and do our best to put up with the new series, too. We're going to take you through five rounds rapid and find out what's uh, awesome about Doctor Who and what occasionally is less than awesome. And we like to start each podcast with a round we call Temporal Grace, just to get us feeling good about Doctor Who. We just like to share something um, that delighted us related to Doctor Who this month. Kelvin? Are you familiar with Pluto TV? No. <laughs> Josh is, but I'm not. Pluto TV is like a, a streaming service you can get of a whole bunch of um, random channels. And it's not like Netflix where you pick what you want. I mean, it's it's like a broadcast schedule. Okay. But there's a whole bunch of channels. And, well, they've just uh, introduced a Doctor Who channel. And it's all the classic series. And they show it at like, what, like 8 o'clock on Thursday night? Or? No, I think it's 24 hour. Over and over again. This would be my dream as a child. That yeah. Whenever you turn on the TV, 20, Doctor Who is playing. 24 7 Doctor Who? <laughs> I, I think it's 24 7 classic Doctor Who, but I don't think they're doing a strict chronological. You know thing. what I would do? Mm. I would have multiple channels, and channel one would be the first Doctor, and channel two would be the second Doctor. <laughs> and channel so War, you'd eventually yes. get it. Channel <laughs> War. <laughs> yeah, maybe someday. But. Channel Valiard. <laughs> Well, my temporal grace this time is I've been watching a lot of British television lately that isn't Doctor Who, but as we all know, watching British television that isn't Doctor Who does not mean that you won't see a lot of Doctor Who people, and I'm always astounded by how many actors show up uh, when you're least expecting it. Um, I just was recently watching an old 1972 adaptation of Clouds of Witness, a Lord Peter Whimsy mystery with uh, Ian Carmichael and Anthony Ainley very young Anthony Ainley pops up at the beginning as nasty guy who gets killed right away character. <laughs> so nice. He's very debonair and charming and assholey and <laughs> he gets murdered about 15 minutes in. But that was a lot of fun. But probably my favorite uh, that I've recently stumbled across is I've been watching this early 2000 sitcom called Miranda starring Miranda Hart and it's your typical British absurd embarrassment sitcom that they love to do over there and I find it really funny uh, but there's a whole episode where it involves Miranda's former high school French teacher who hooks up with Miranda's current roommate and that French teacher is played by Peter Davison <laughs> now as soon as I saw him I went oh this is going to be 
funny. There's going to be all about like you know French jokes, and Peter Davison is going to be super witty. But no, they cast Peter Davison to pretty much walk around Miranda's apartment half naked, <laughs> awkwardly bumping into her after having sex with her roommate. <laughs> he barely has any lines. <laughs> He's just and, and creepy what, old half-naked guy. And what year was this? <laughs> About ten years ago. I think it, was, okay. it had to be around 2009. About I think his appearance in the Doctor Who special with David Tennant. Kelvin is just really trying to process this. Yeah, or I, I, imagine I, I, Peter Davison half-naked. <laughs> we, we need a real beefcake type for this role. <laughs> <laughs> Who can we get? Oh, maybe one of those Doctor Who actors. <laughs> it took him 30 years, but he finally is no yeah. longer typecast as the Doctor. <laughs> when Jason Momoa was busy. <laughs> so for my temporal grace, if you'll allow me a little self-indulgence, I'm very pleased at what we have planned for the next three episodes of Get Off My World. Uh, we have this kind of ambitious double arc Listeners, we're going to be covering first all of the fifth Doctor comics that appeared in Doctor Who Monthly in the 1980s. And at the same time, we're going to be covering a three-story big finish arc from 2009 that intersects with those comic strips in interesting ways. I I think this was kind of a pretty clever idea of ours, (laughs) fellows, and if I do say so myself. So thank you very much for being a part of this, and we'll see see if it works. (laughs) But before we do any of that... We're going to have a special Topics Dalek. And this week, Kelvin has something to ask us. Well, recently I saw online a discussion of which doctor had the longest lifespan. But I started thinking about kind of reversing that. So which doctor do you think had the shortest lifespan? (laughs) I think everyone's tempted to say the ninth, but I wonder. In a lot of... In continuity ways, the Ninth Doctor and the War Doctor are almost the same person, right? You know, like Stephen Moffat clearly wanted the War Doctor to be Christopher Eccleston, but because Eccleston wouldn't come back to it, that didn't happen. So I find it a little bit kind of narratively hard to disengage those two. Yeah, but they aren't the same. But they no, you're right. They are not. So how long did the time war go on? How long did, was John it, Hurt the war doctor? You, you could make a case that the war doctor is the the longest lifespan doctor. I think. Well, we see he regenerates as a young John Hurt in Night of the Doctor because we see yeah. his reflection. Um, so he lived a long time. We know the doctor ages slower than humans. So that doesn't represent 70 years when we see him next in Day of the Doctor, but could represent a thousand years. Mm-hmm. We know in-universe Matt Smith lived a long time. Yeah. I've heard arguments that he's the longest living Doctor because of what they did uh, for his regeneration episode. Could be the first. But that's the longest living. The Lo- yeah, living. I think the longest. Living. I yeah. think um, the Ninth Doctor is a candidate because you have to go with, at some point, if there's not an in-universe age set between him becoming the Ninth Doctor and leaving, then you have to go a little by stories. Yeah. And he has the fewest TV stories. He has the fewest novelizations, probably. He's only, ever, he's only had like strips. one or two companions, depending on how. Yeah. I'm going to make a case for three. I was thinking three. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because his beginning and closing stories on television are bracketed by being on Earth and hanging out with the Brigadier and the unit. Mm-hmm. And although... 
as we all know, there are a million Doctor Who stories that can fit into various gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a time established in the Third Doctor's chronology where he is not with somebody like Joe or Liz or Sarah Jane. So even taking all of the novels and ancillary materials that we know of, those are still fitted in with normal human being lifespans mm-hmm. and in a relatively short period of time on Earth. And, and yeah, and a big chunk of his tenure is sitting in modern-day Earth trying to get away from modern-day Earth. Yeah. Three or nine? Nine, Two yeah. to three or nine. I think the second Doctor just keeps having his whole life span extended by various yeah. <laughs> hypothetical uh, side trips yeah. and uh, weird aging of the actor in certain stories. He's the Doctor that really opened up this kind of fan theory extra lifespan into something legit and canonical. And what did we learn about Peter Capaldi? He was hanging out at Oxford for like a couple of hundred years, <laughs> right? So there's a whole universe of stories there that... Was he there that long? Was He, he was a they, teacher they were, there. They were implying it was like a yeah. longer than human lifespan length of time. Yeah, I don't think there's anything in his story to um, suggest he was one of the longest lived, but nothing to suggest he's short lived. Yeah. It's a reasonable length of time. <laughs> he, he's not Hugh Grant in Curse of Fatal Death. <laughs> or Jim Broadbent. Joanna, Joanna Lum. But, <laughs> yeah. but she doesn't, we don't see her get killed. Mm-hmm. Richard E. Grant, he's the other one. Oh, are you talking about the cartoon Richard E. Grant Doctor? No, the Curse, no, the, the, the the curse, the curse of Fatal Death. Death. Is that the same Doctor? This is a whole other discussion. <laughs> so, the, if, if that were the, the case... The Schalke Doctor and, and yes. Richard E. Grant and Curse of the Fatal Death. Same Doctor! What that means, then, mm-hmm. is that he was... He regenerated in Curse of Fatal Death into Richard E. Grant. Mm-hmm. And then in the few moments before he was shot again... Or he blew slipped up. away for a series of adventures. <laughs> exactly. He picked up the robot master, played by Derek Jacobi, had a whole thing going on, and then came back to a few moments before he turned into what, Joanna Lumley? Yeah. I forget the order that it that it occurs in. It doesn't seem likely that you would put off turning into Joanna Lumley that long. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe he hit Richard E. Grant's form more than once. <laughs> Be true. He was like, I'm a big Whitnail and I fan, <laughs> and I'm going to do this again. And now our third round, the randomizer. <laughs> I gave you an opening, but it, it was just too easy. Yeah, I'm defective for it. All right, and the randomizer has selected for us today the brain of Morbius. Uh, a fourth Doctor story. In fact, it is the fifth story of season 13, written by Robin Bland, also known as Terrence Dix with a heavy rewrite from Robert Holmes, and yeah. uh, directed by Christopher Barry. So, guys, what do you think of The Brain of Morbius? You know, offline, Kelvin and I were having this discussion. We think Morbius is a little bit of a fascist. <laughs> Maybe just a smidge. Just a smidge. There's maybe evidence presented to that effect within the story. <laughs> but Frankenstein's monster wasn't a fascist, was he? And I feel like there's no. more more influences there. Or, or maybe we've stumbled across something. Mary Shelley's monster never said, you know, I'm like a sponge beneath the sea. <laughs> or maybe he did. It's a long book, but I don't think so. I skipped through a lot of it, I'll be honest. <laughs> 
He was quite well spoken, the monster, <laughs> yes. but uh, I don't think he really had uh, universe domination plans. No, he just had vengeance plans. Yeah, vengeance. He just wanted a mate. There's no sex in this at all. Like, Morbius is not interested in a mate. Not yet. He not doesn't a, get far enough. Not a first mate, <laughs> not a soul mate, nothing. If Perry were in this one. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, going to talk about that next episode. Yeah, the, right. the misshapen thing would, would be Mackin on Perry, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll put a pin in that. Yeah, for all of, of uh, Terrence Dix's and Robert Holmes's weird idiosyncrasies uh, the sexual threat is not usually something that they that they bring into the story I, I will say though that Sarah doesn't get to do a lot in this story they literally had to blind her because she's super competent as yeah. usual she disguises herself as one of the sisterhood of Karn mm-hmm. and frees the doctor and then is instantly blinded for pretty much the remainder of the adventure to take her a, off the table as a useful person, and then B, to conform to a, a genre stereotype. There's always, like, young, blind women in these hammer horror or universal monster kind There's of also stories. the blind old man in Frankenstein, too, which I kind of thought might be a little bit of an yep. homage, because she ends up stumbling across the brain of Morbius when she's blind. Actually, all three cliffhangers are Sarah stumbling across some portion of Morbius until the third and final cliffhanger in which he is now assembled. (laughs) So she slowly assembles the monster via cliffhangers. (laughs) Nicely noted. I I didn't realize that. I I forgot how unsettling the headless Morbius body just kind of thrashing on the table. (laughs) The wires kind of sticking out. Yeah, Yeah, there is a lot of body hoarder horror in this uh, a lot of body hoarding as well it, it really is yeah. <laughs> i gotta jump to my favorite scene though it's when um condor finds his hand on morbius's body turns on solon and they fight Solon shoots him with this really graphic mm-hmm. bloody squib they knock the brain over and we watch this brain <laughs> hit the ground and then my favorite part about this entire Serial is the fact that the uh, three-second rule applies to brains <laughs> because <laughs> he immediately picks it up and <laughs> kind of holds it and then it, recruits a, f- a blind woman to help him perform surgery. <laughs> to pump the thing. Yeah, It's uh, not, not a lot of uh, legit neuroscience in the show. Uh, although... Not that you wouldn't know that from the dialogue, because yeah. not only is Solon, you know, self-aggrandizing himself tremendously, but the doctor seems to go along with it. The most brilliant neuros. Yeah, yeah, and the doctor knows who he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This man could put a brain in a fishbowl. <laughs> That's but, pretty much his credentials. Uh, well, well what gets me is how, like, you're trying to preserve the brain of who you think of as, like, the greatest leader the universe has ever seen or whatever. And okay, he, he's working with like random junk that is lying around on Karn. Yeah. But it is like the most unsanitary operating theater. <laughs> he doesn't even wear gloves. We he doesn't to, even wear a mask. We have to assume there's like some super science sanitation thing going yeah. on. Like, oh, we didn't need to worry about microbes. Because. Yeah, some sort of uh, bacteria zapper. But you've touched on something that I actually quite like about this story, yeah. which is that. We only get hints of who Morbius was and what he did and how important he was, and that's kind of an easy thing to establish through dialogue. But what we actually see is the most pathetic garbage. He's like 
here he's a brain, he's a sponge beneath the sea. There's a dude who's assembling his body out of spare parts, including the arm of his, you know, mentally disabled servant. It's, <laughs> it's like the lowest you could possibly be and still be a threat. It's but he's got lungs that can breathe cyanide. <laughs> right. Well, it's worse than, like, Napoleon on Elba, right? It's like further, he's fallen so far down that now it, he's at the bottom of the planetary food chain. <laughs> There's that scene where uh, Morbius's brain and Solon are just squabbling with each other like an old married couple. <laughs> like, Did you find my body? I, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking. Did you pay the mortgage? <laughs> I forgot. I, I would watch that web series. <laughs> yeah, no. Dr. Solon, Dr. Solon, and the brain, 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 brain. I do love Solon. I think he's a terrific actor. I forget the guy's name. It's uh, uh, Philip Maddock, who has appeared many times in Doctor Who. Yes, uh, was he not in the running for being the Doctor at one I'm point? Sure he was. All those guys were <laughs> at some point. I mean, if you sh- were on the show more than twice, you were someone who they were thinking of as the Doctor at some point in those early days. We didn't actually hate that guy. We invited him back a second time, so he could probably be the Doctor. We'll put a coat on him. <laughs> I agree with you, Pat. He does such a great job believing everything. It's not really a naturalistic performance, but he is like committed without going completely over the top. I, he's pretty over the top. On the scale of Doctor Who, well, yeah. the topness, he, he is on the low end of over the top. Okay, like yeah, he's not. Like, not, like, not, like, not like, like, like Sheriff's Jack is like over here, yeah. and then Solon is a little farther down. Yeah, <laughs> considering the everything going on around him in this yeah. show, he is amazingly restrained. Mm-hmm. He picks a brain up off the floor. <laughs> and, like, weeps over it like it's a hurt puppy or something. I feel that he, he delivers a lot of the lines extremely well because he has to pull back some of the narrative weirdness mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The the moment he sees Tom Baker, what a magnificent head. <laughs> like, oh, what not, a magnificent head. That's not suspicious at all. And then, of course, he, <laughs> then of course he, he poisons him. He kidnaps Sarah, and then he goes to the sisters when uh, they're going to kill Tom Baker and tries to get Tom Baker back. And he's like, well, if I can't have him back, can I at least have his head? <laughs> and then, you know, the doctor escapes and he comes back. And you'd be, you might expect him to be a little bit, like, ashamed of this. But they continue to have their nice conversation between the two of them. He actually talks with the doctor about mm-hmm. Sarah's blindness and they have a, you know, a, a medical conversation about what needs to happen there. Not many actors could actually pull this off, I think. And he was fun to watch throughout. This is kind of a weird observation to make about a, a story that is so obviously derived from Frankenstein and brain transplants and body stealing and things, but... I really forgot just how grim this story is. The doctor escapes by killing the bad guy with cyanide gas. <laughs> That's hitting a lot of ick buttons. <laughs> I've said this before in this podcast because the Colin Baker era gets so much stick for being violent, the doctor acting out of character. If you go back and watch these first couple seasons of Tom Baker, he's as brutal He's just funnier, so we yeah. forget about it. He's just he's funnier, yeah, funnier while he's murdering. People. And I still can't quite. Okay, just, just to be clear, I really love this story. I consider it a favorite of mine. But my one big issue with it is like I still don't quite understand why the doctor thought, okay, we're locked in a room, we can't get out of it, but we can kill our captor with cyanide gas because that'll get us out of the locked room. 
Until you just mentioned it, I hadn't really thought. But you're right. <laughs> what exactly yeah. was the doctor's plan here? <laughs> let's, let's kill the people who can get us out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have no answer for that. Because Sarah asks, well, how will we know if, it, if it's worked? Mm-hmm. You know, well, if we're still here in a month, it hasn't worked. Maybe we're going down a rabbit hole here. Yeah. But he was trying to get out by doing that. It might have been lost in one of Robert Holmes' rewrites. Condo's <laughs> uh, already dead at that point, right? Yes. Yeah. Dead-ish. I love how they go into a suspicious castle, and as you say, the guy says, uh, what a magnificent head, and he offers them a, a strange alien wine, and Tom is all over it. Just downs it by the glass full, and Sarah's the one, again, who's shrewd enough to pour it out and not drink it. I, I did want to speak to that because I, I think, uh, Kelvin, you said this is one of your favorites and it's always left me a little bit uncertain. Part of that is I think because it wears its hammer horror narrative tropes so close to the surface that I think they jar with mm. Doctor Who a little bit. Mm-hmm. What you're saying, Josh, is exactly right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm the fourth Doctor. I come in and the guy says, yeah, can I have your head and here's some poisoned wine and let's talk about Morbius and here's this bust of somebody. Hmm, who could that possibly be? Don't get me be? wrong, that is not a criticism. No. <laughs> I think it is like so in character yeah. for um, the fourth Doctor and his arrogance. I, he I goes see and mansplains the yeah. fire to the Sisterhood <laughs> of Karn. I see what you're saying. For me, it seems like some of the story beats have to rely on a naive character, mm-hmm. and the Doctor is not a naive character. Yeah, like, right. going back to Solon, and at, after the Doctor has himself diagnosed Sarah's blindness as being a temporary condition, to then go back to Solon and, oh, it's not a temporary condition and you need the Sisterhood to cure it, so I'll go back to the people who just tried to kill me. Like, this is a Jonathan Harker kind of person doing that. This is not <laughs> yes. a Fourth Doctor kind of person doing that. And I think it's it's demanded by the, the narrative necessity of the story. I still like this story a lot, but I, the one other thing I couldn't quite figure out is why does the head of the sisterhood sacrifice herself at the end? I think I remember watching that as a kid and just not getting what happened. I think the, the implication is, is that she literally throws herself into this volcanic fire to produce enough miracle juice. To save the doctor, right? Yeah. Is that what's going on? Yeah. Isn't she a little embarrassed by all of the... She, she definitely has regrets about her assumptions. Yeah. I think, to Pat's previous point, there are places where the just plot mechanics without any justification or character motivation just happen. It's mm-hmm. just that everyone in it is so much fun. It yeah. points to how right. this, this yeah. era of Doctor Who could have a really messy... Um, script that clearly two people fought over and still be a blast to watch, even though it's a yeah, mess yeah. in large portions. Well, of well it. you know what what Terrence Dix's original concept was? Yes, I read about that. Solon wasn't going to be human. Solon was going to be a robot. Okay, and he really liked this like weird frisson uh, of a brainless thing that didn't have the emo- any emotions, understanding the implications of what it was doing. It had no aesthetic sense or idea of beauty, which is why it created this just ugly monster. Yeah. It was just a, a practical decision on the robot's part. Yeah. I have these parts. I shall assemble it. Yeah. And that got axed uh, apparently for budgetary concerns because they just didn't have the budget for a robot suit. And I guess it was Holmes who uh, poured on all the hammer horror stuff over the top of that. And it was more of a sci-fi tale of that Dick's put together. And it became kind of just old school mad scientist stuff. 
which I'm not, I can't really object to it, <laughs> aesthetically. <laughs> it's interesting to see that kind of core at the heart of it. That's a Legion of Superheroes plot point. That's how Therok came into yeah. existence. Uh, but this is much more gothic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to see through the gothicness of it because the sets are so lush. Mm-hmm. I, I have lots of criticisms about the story, mm-hmm. the story itself, but, but the look, the look so of fun. it is tremendous. Yeah, Just, I, the I, sisters I, themselves are fantastic. Oh, yeah. Those red costumes. I'm so surprised they never brought the, the sisterhood back more than they did. Yeah, only in that uh, Night of the Doctor. Yeah. I just love the irony of a coven of witches burning the man of science, the Doctor. <laughs> well, there's a lot of gender stuff that we could talk about uh, that we'll we'll wait until we actually have some, some women on the podcast to do it. But, I mean, the, the superstitious kind of impractical sisterhood mm-hmm. is easily swayed and and convinced by the man of science by the incredibly the, arrogant fourth doctor the chimney sweep yeah <laughs> i know and it's i it's mean like, it's so trivial oh i just oh. dropped a firecracker down your magic fire thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah like the ladies are all like well i guess it's drying up i guess it will just die <laughs> we're not going to try to yeah i mean there has been other stories about the sisterhood outside yeah. of the TV show where they used to be Time Lords, but they like decided to explore like a purely psychic thing mm-hmm. instead of technology thing. So they went off on their own and had this weird, low tech, superstitious, but high brain power thing. Sacred flame, <laughs> sacred fire. <laughs> they got a cool chant, that's for sure. The last thing I want to say about this it's connected to to what we were just talking about the sisterhood it's so interesting how controversies change over decades because that's probably today the most controversial aspect of this story is the gender politics between you know time lords and the Mm -hmm. all-female sisterhood and in our day it was like there were doctors before the first doctor remember how controversial (laughs) this was because of that oh yeah it's like it's like whatever it's like the last thing we talk about here. <laughs> they just needed to fill another 45 it's seconds so of screen clear. time so they'll have yeah, it, it, images uh, of the production staff. In my head canon, a lot of those are previous regenerations of Morbius and mm-hmm. possible alternate futures of the Doctor or something. And that was my head canon before yeah. the War Doctor. And now thanks to Stephen Moffat, we now know that the Doctor can regenerate and not accept that regeneration if he's ashamed of it. So now my assumption is we had all these doctors beforehand that the doctor's been too ashamed to admit that did something embarrassing. It's like the, <laughs> I like to eat at Chili's doctor. Yeah, the, <laughs> and the, the, I went to a Michael Bolton concert once, doctor. The doctor that had really bad breath. Or <laughs> the doctor who went to a frat and you know got... Sigma Delta or whatever tattooed on his bicep. No, that was John Pearl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right, and so for our fourth round this time, we're doing something we call Silence in the Library. This is where we discuss... (laughs) Printed material of Doctor Who. Oh, I get it now. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It took a while. What, about three or four years? Yes. That's pretty Um, clever. Yeah, it's a library. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It doesn't just have, you know, terminals there for you to check your pornography on. It's It's got books. So uh, we're going to start our examination of some of the 1980s Doctor Who comic strips today by talking about two. The Neutron Knights... 
and The Tides of Time. Now, The Neutron Nights is the last story featuring the fourth Doctor in the original Doctor Who monthly comic, but we're going to talk about it because it leads into some of the continuity that we're going to talk about in The Tides of Time. Uh, Both of these stories were written by Steve Parkhouse and illustrated by the great Dave Gibbons. Yes, I love this Dave Gibbons art. Um... He, of course, would go on after his stint on Doctor Who to work with DC Comics for a long time, uh, illustrating Watchmen, among a lot of... He did Green Lantern for a long time. um, So he's terrific, and this is probably where I first noticed him because I read these comics as a kid in a couple of different places. I read them uh, in the Doctor Who Monthly magazine as they were coming out, some of them, Mm -hmm. but more frequently in the Marvel Comics reprints that ran for about 12 or or so issues in the 1980s that were recolorized. They were originally black and white in Doctor Who Monthly, and then they were colorized in uh, the Marvel reprints and have been reprinted in a number of different places since then by IDW Comics and so on and so on and so on. So let's talk about the Neutron Knights first. What's going on in this story? Like, what's the deal with the Neutron Knights? It is a bizarre story by Doctor Who standards. It's eight pages. And it is a goodbye to Tom Baker in comic strip form. I mean, not that the story suggests that. It's just a strange choice. Instead of it being a coda for uh, Tom Baker comic strips, it's a prologue to the introduction of Peter Davison as the comic strip doctor, which is interesting. There's a thing with these Steve Parkhouse scripts, and if we had talked about some of the early Tom Baker stuff, we could go into further depth on this, where he likes to play with the idea of, is this the past, or is this the future? Mm -hmm. So in The Neutron Knights, uh, what we're looking at is a battle between King Arthur and his knights against uh, Catavalcus. 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 Um, and the Doctor is confused at the end of the story about what time frame he's in. Is this the past? Is this the future? This is something that Steve Parkhouse had done previously on his Prometheus story. The Doctor meets Prometheus where he's giving fire to humanity and he's not sure whether that was he was coming from Earth or going away from Earth in that story. So there's a lot of this circular time business that Parkhouse seems to want to do in his stories. And here the confusion is because it's Merlin and... Are they specific about the knights? He's Arthur. It's King Arthur, yeah. Yeah. But and, it's and specifically the far-flung future technology. Wise. It has to be, because there's a nuclear engine there that explodes at the end. Again, it's only eight pages. It's mostly a, uh, a demonstration of, of Gibbons's skill as an illustrator. So It's also interesting because it's the last Tom Baker story, and Gibbons has really mastered uh, Tom Baker. Yeah. His illustrations of him are just perfect without looking like publicity stills that he's traced. It helps that Tom Baker's face lends itself to a sort of cartoonish expression mm-hmm. in the way that a lot of other doctors don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is also the first comic that introduces any sort of continuity elements in uh, the Doctor Who comic strips, unless you count the comic strip companions uh, like Sharon. Uh, who we're not going to talk about today, but is worth a uh, conversation in the future because uh, in addition to being the first comic strip continuity element, she's also the first black companion 27 years before Martha showed up and wow, yeah. the first working class girl a quarter century before Rose shows up. 
but mostly I think this tiny little story serves as a kind of a statement of purpose or intro to the tides of time and some of the later stories that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about in later today at, or right now, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and then it's in really just episodes. there to pique your curiosity. Yeah. Is the alt history Merlin the doctor from the battlefield alternate <laughs> universe? Hard, I would say no. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. No. <laughs> Could be. He's clearly Nickel Williamson from Excalibur. He's, he, he definitely reminiscent of that. He's yeah. got the skull cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Excalibur came out in April of 1981. I looked this up. Uh, the, oh, this comic. This is 82, right? This is or, January 1982. Yeah. It predates DC Comics Camelot 3000 by almost a year. Wow. Camelot 3000 came out in December 1982 with the Brian Bolland art. Um, clearly, it was something in the air, and that something that was in the air was Excalibur. <laughs> People all of a sudden wanted to do Arthurian stories. But it leads us into The Tides of Time, the first Fifth Doctor story in Doctor Who Monthly. And it is a bonkers story. I love it so much, you guys. This is <laughs> one of my favorite pieces of Doctor Who ever. Totally unironically, I love this so much. This was a huge part of my childhood, this story. So it has the character of Shade in it, yeah. which is yeah. the, the artificial humanoid from the Matrix. I would draw, unlike my homework, like this little <laughs> shadowy thing of like Shade turning from a shadow into like a three-dimensional <laughs> thing. Uh, because I was, and that, this is also when I started signing my name with a question mark instead of a P for Pat. <laughs> and so it, it was very influential, this period is what I'm saying. Well, <laughs> yeah. And revisiting it, it stands up. I love it. I love all of it. It's kind of a Mike Moorcock storyline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of I was is, thinking yeah. the same thing. Yeah, and, and the art is kind of a Jim like Starlin, a, Steve Michael Ditko. Michael Moorcock wrote an episode of Sapphire and Steel. Yeah, <laughs> and got Salvador Dali and, 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 and Jim Starenko to illustrate it. And it has it. that sort of Marvel Comics cosmic thing of here's this weird contraption or artifact that's god-powerful that is just there for some damn reason. And, oh, someone got a hold of it. And is Like, why would the event synthesizer exist? Why is that? <laughs> and not just that, the higher evolutionaries, they talk yeah. about that's such a Marvel Comics phrase. Mm-hmm. Or it's a very Stephen Moffat-y kind of thing where, oh, we're going to bolt these the solar system together and send it spinning in a white hole. <laughs> it's like, breathtakingly wonderful sort of concept. I love how big it all is. And it's funny, they don't really explain the significance of it. They just let the illustration and just the words somehow be powerful, like that's a cliffhanger. It's suspended in a white hole. Yep. (laughs) And? I acknowledge that that's cool. (laughs) But but that's what they're doing. Like, isn't that cool? It's it's, cool cliffhangers. There's a certain school of British science fiction that kind of came out of the science fiction new wave movement where they just kind of would fling crazy ass concepts at you and like any one of them you think is going to be a story and they just kind of drop them and come up yeah. here's another crazy ass thing you yeah know? what i also found interesting about it is it feels like someone gave Parkhouse like the doctor who story bible he flipped through it tore out four pages he liked and threw the rest of it over his shoulder because it's got all this continuity with Gallifrey and even specifically that he's president. But in other ways, the doctor doesn't 
act much like the doctor and some of his dialogue doesn't sound particularly like the doctor. Mm. I don't mean mm. that as a criticism. It's what I find fascinating and enjoy about the comics is this freedom to take what you like, ditch the rest, and let it be a vehicle for your imagination. Because this is a time in which people were just like desperate for more Doctor Who. So they weren't critical. I mean, if it's more Doctor Who, they're going to take it in 1982. And Rassilon's in it. Yeah, pre-Five Doctors Rassilon, too. Pre- so we have not actually seen Rassilon mm-hmm. on TV, and he's much more... And he's uh, just sort of living in the Matrix as some kind of, you know, Merlin-ish Yeah, it's mu- he's much more benevolent here than when we see him in the Five Doctors. Oh, God, Doctors. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Doctor is very passive. In this whole story, he doesn't really do very much. Uh, the, the Matrix guys do, and yeah. Sir Justin does a lot of stuff, but... The Doctor's kind of a non-entity. That was kind of my main criticism of it, was just the Doctor's just kind of walking around in a gape at Elvis. And and at least they give him good stuff to gape at. And And it it all starts off when he's playing cricket. (laughs) Yes. Oh, wait, the cricket ball's a grenade now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Parkhouse is clearly interested in playing with Doctor Who high concepts, but not Mm -hmm. really interested in telling a Doctor Who story. Mm -hmm. So this is Doctor Who stretching its elbows into the... You know, the corners of the story that it can't do on television, and it's really trying to do other things, different things. You can never have done this on television. At the yeah, time. like the, you know, the weird demon thing, Manculus or. Melanicus. Yeah. yeah. I love uh, Gibbons' artwork for him. Him bursting out of the view screen <sighs> is tremendous. <laughs> I love that. Um, but my favorite sequence, uh, both in concept and in illustration, is when they materialize the TARDIS in front of the floating gigantic rubber duck Yes, and then we step back in a panel and see that the TARDIS is floating in a bathtub and you're like that's really cool but then wait it gets cooler and then Shade appears and sticks his hand in the tub and drains it and it's just it's a beautiful sequence it's beautiful and it also predates a similar sequence from Alan Moore's Swamp Thing with the Spectre from a few years later I'm certain that Alan Moore had this in mind when he was playing these scale games with the Spectre in Swamp Thing. No, there's definitely um, a certain feel to, like, the British comic writers of the 80s that was incredibly distinct. And I have a hard time explaining it exactly, but it's just this kind of far-out, almost completely surrealistic nonsense, but it still yeah. kind of means something. Read half a dozen issues of 2000 AD from that mm-hmm. period, and you'll yeah. know exactly what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. So you guys, I got a thing. Do your thing. I spent like a lot of time on the whole Prime Mover thing from the very <laughs> first page. So bear with me for just a, a few minutes, if, if you don't mind. So A, of course, the idea of the Prime Mover, that's from Aristotle. Because everything has a cause, right? Mm-hmm. A causes B and B causes C and stuff. So it, logically, there must have been a prime mover at the beginning of things, the unmoved mover. That's not at all what is actually going on in this story. But <laughs> I tried to figure out his melody. My music theory is limited, but the prime mover says that his theme is in the key of G sharp. So G sharp is apparently the internet tells me, what they call a theoretical key or an impossible key. Not because it's impossible to play, but because it's a key whose key signature has at least one double flat or a double sharp in it, which makes it hard to read. So G-sharp major is one of those sorts of keys. It has a double sharp on its leading tone of F, 
F sharp sharp. Mm-hmm. In other words, a G. Yes. Uh, as it turns out, the key of G sharp is exactly the same as the key of A flat, which you can write down in a much easier way, and that's what most people choose to do, unless uh, they are writing a piece of music like Bach would sometimes do, where you have a piece of music that is modulating to a very distant key, in which case, uh, as a way to avoid cluttering up the main body of the musical notation with a million accidentals, you might switch to a key, something like G-sharp major. There's a passage from the uh, well-tempered clavier that's notated in G-sharp major. Now, G-sharp minor, on the other hand, because the prime mover doesn't specify, Mm -hmm. uh, is a more common sort of notation. It's not super common in orchestral music, except as a way to modulate keys, like I previously mentioned. But there is a fair amount of keyboard music written in that key, which is logical because a lot of keyboard works are written as etudes or studies designed to test the skill of the keyboardist. Uh, Alexander Scriabin, Shostakovich, and Mazorksky all use this a lot. They're all Russians. Chopin did too. He's a Pole. There might be something Eastern European sounding about that key. Liszt also wrote some stuff. He's a Hungarian, but more to the point, someone who very self-consciously wrote unusual, difficult music in order to demonstrate his own virtuosity. But I don't know whether the prime mover is playing in major or minor, because it doesn't specify. From the pitches he talks about, A-sharp, C, G-sharp, G-sharp again, and D-sharp, I'm guessing major, because those are closest to the pitches of of the major scale that he's talking about. So, in any case, the theme he plays sounds something like this. Best I can tell, that's what he's playing. <laughs> what about a few twiddly bits? <laughs> Some twiddly bits, yeah, which I can't do, <laughs> of course. Uh, that may possibly be a famous piece of music from somewhere. It kind of reminds me of the Close Encounters, but it's not exactly <laughs> it. But yeah. You know. It's not the identicals. Twiddly bits. <laughs> yeah, that's a prime mover. <laughs> okay, so maybe not close encounters. So maybe not close encounters. <laughs> it might have been a famous piece of music, maybe from Bach or something. I think I, Steve Parkhouse probably just made it up. I think he just made it up. But and, I applaud and, your effort, sir. That was impressive. This was like my Saturday morning, Josh. <laughs> dug into this one. But, you know, just the whole idea that reality is just some crazy old man playing a big organ. <laughs> you know, there's no... There's some truth to that. <laughs> you know, there's no... Hmm, I, I, I think I'll create Slantarans today. And then he plays the Benny Hill music. Yeah. <laughs> I love Sir Justin. I love how eager yeah. he is. I love that great scene where he launches himself through the cathedral window and stabs the sword into Melanicus's heart. Ah, I'd love to have it's seen that the, on television. The whole weird thing of like he's like some solo knight from the Middle Ages and he just totally accepts what's going on. <laughs> I know. Oh, okay. Oh, clearly you're an angel or something. Uh, all right, this is me now. I guess, <laughs> I guess this is my life. <laughs> 
And it ends with that wonderful, quiet little epitaph for him, uh, the little poem that uh, he reads on, uh, on the inscription on the cathedral, which I've known by heart since I was 12 years old. I, I had assumed it was a well-known or at least uh, pre-existing poem because it sounds a little like, like Keats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not. It's just something Steve Parkhouse wrote, as far as I can tell, that little epitaph. I just love it from beginning to end. It really builds... It's information dense. Mm-hmm. It's not this decompressed style of comic book storytelling that you could have a year's worth of issues telling this story now. Yeah. Uh, but this is seven, eight page parts, and there's a whole season's worth of wonderful stuff in here. There's also something really fun knowing it's the first Fifth Doctor comic book story. Yeah. And you do watch Gibbons learn to draw the Fifth Doctor throughout all seven parts. He doesn't quite capture the likeness early on, and, and his attempts to draw him don't even look like Dave Gibbons. You can tell he's struggling. And by the end, it is that quintessential Dave Gibbons version of the Fifth Doctor that I, I would recognize anywhere. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Cricket, they were just trying some way to explain why John Nathan Turner put him in a Cricket outfit. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, they probably wrote this before it had had even aired possibly probably, they probably, probably just got a still and said okay i guess this is the cricket doctor so he'll start and end the story by playing cricket i think that's where most of the stockbridge ideas came from it's like oh he mm-hmm. likes cricket we're gonna do these stories where he just hangs out in a sleepy little english village playing cricket and here we are still talking about it how many what 40 years later or something uh, not quite that much getting close yeah we're old <laughs> Okay, next up on the Doctor Who agenda, we are going into Arcs of Infinity, in which we will be discussing one of the audio adventures, uh, specifically The Castle of Fear, uh, written by Alan Barnes and directed by Barnaby Edwards uh, from 2009, featuring the Fifth Doctor, and it is in the continuity, more or less, of the Stockbridge comics stories. We didn't mention, but uh, Tides of Time takes place in the small English village of Stockbridge, which was the location of many of the Fifth Doctor adventures in the comic strip. Yeah, it wasn't established until the next comic strip that that was happening in Stockbridge. Um, And just the cricket game happened in Stockbridge. Everything else happened in a white hole. There wasn't a white hole in Stockbridge, (laughs) no. (laughs) You're a white hole. Yes, they they, they mentioned Wells Wood. Uh, which later on will be established as a part of Stockbridge. Yes. We were talking a little before recording that on this podcast we have not featured much in the way, a few, but of these traditional main-range, big-finished Doctor Who audios that are in four half-hour-ish chunks, just like the standard TV show. And it's a little bit of a, a change in pace from the box sets we've been listening to that are the stories are modeled on the new series of about 50 minutes of faster-paced storytelling, whereas these really take their time to either, depending on the story, to create mood and atmosphere or indulge themselves, as I think Castle of Fear is a very indulgent story. Why do you say so, Josh? (laughs) This is essentially a comedy or an attempt at it here and there. I don't want to give it too much stick because I do think it has some fun moments, uh, but it is definitely... 
a little tired and spots the jokes. I think it's reasonably funny. The breakdown for listeners who might not have heard the story is that the Doctor and Nyssa are watching a Christmas pantomime a, a, play, play. a mummer's play in, I want to say, 1899, somewhere around there. And there are unusual elements of it that lead them to go back to medieval Stockbridge and encounter a bunch of Monty Python kind of characters for the most part. And so there's lots of sort of Holy Grail style or Douglas Adams style jokes, which I think are all pretty funny. Everyone describes it as Python-esque, but I I don't think it's ever as wacky as what I think of Python-esque as being. Within the confines of Doctor Who, it feels Python-esque. It doesn't go that far over the top. Occasionally, here and there, it goes pretty far over the top. It's not like absurdist. It's just sort of... It's not absurdist. I mean, you know, there's characters like, you know, Maud the Withered, who I I loved. (laughs) So the, I, see, I knew Calvin would love this. One of the reasons I wanted to discuss this, and I really like it too. One thing I want to say first off about it is that what I think gives it life is that the ideas are really clever and funny. So even when the actual maybe punchline of a scripted joke doesn't hit as hard as they want it to, there's just a lot of fun, clever ideas going on behind it. And it has a really classic Doctor Who monster story in the background of all these jokes. Sort of give it a backbone. The Rutans came back. <laughs> you know, spoilers. Rutans. Were you shocked when you got to that part? For some reason, I wasn't expecting it to Rutans. I, I wasn't either the first time I heard it. I thought it would be some, you know, unique to the story alien or something. But I thought it was a good mystery, a good mystery reveal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dug it. it. It follows the pattern of a lot of Big Finish stories where it starts out wacky and funny and then grows more and more serious over the course of things Mm -hmm. and in really really good instances like the holy terror or chimes of midnight or something like that that can really have a solid emotional payoff that's not what this is going for it's not trying to do that by any means it starts out wacky and then goes into normal doctor who adventure stuff i realized that early on and i was like (laughs) okay this is what i'm getting and it's pretty funny if you allow it to be I also think grounding this comic story in the idea of the Doctor inspiring uh, the Mummer's play helps to at least aesthetically justify the broad characters, right? Because this is sort of the story of the creation of the Mummer's play, and you have the actual cast of the audio playing it in that same big style. And then you have all these reveals throughout that these really broad accents that the actors are playing are really characters within the story putting on these broad accents because they're disguised as different characters. So I thought all those reveals worked really well. Just when you thought, yeah. okay, they are pushing this Frenchman maybe as far as it can go. <laughs> and then you go, oh, it's really forced because he's this character within the story is bad at his French accent. And I, those little things just please me to know. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that duplicity that was kind of happening at that time when People came back from the Crusades. and Well, like they didn't come back from the Crusades, but someone says, Oh, hey, I'm back from the Crusades, and I'm actually this guy. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So your um, security card. <laughs> so your dog tags, yeah. Yeah, back in college, I was actually uh, in a mummer's play once. Did you play Mod the Withered? No, <laughs> but they are like that. They're very broad, very arch, and, and people just sort of, say what they're going to do and like I will now fight you and and you just kind of clack pieces of wood together and and it's it's all very ridiculous and phony 
I thought Nissa is fabulous in this. This is yeah. sort of how I would like Nissa to be portrayed almost at all times. This sort of highly competent and dryly sarcastic. Uh, a lot of the comedy doesn't come, it comes from her lack of familiarity, but not her ignorance. It's, it's yeah. a fine delineation, right? She's never the butt of the jokes, even when she doesn't get it. It's usually because she's better off for not getting it. She gave me the biggest laugh of this one. It, the doctor calls somebody a peasant, or yeah. someone is referred to as a peasant, and Sarah Sutton says, Come along, peasant! And I can't do it justice, but just the beautiful delivery of yeah. it. I just exploded. Yeah. Oh, she is, is gorgeous. She is really enjoying this. And they give her the big uh, scene-stealing bit at the end, where she's the one who tricks the, the Rutans, and mm-hmm. uh, the doctor is pleasingly... Uh, she, Skeptical uh, yes. about her ability to do this, and, and she just keeps showing him up moment by moment that she's got it totally under control. So, and there are wild pigs. <laughs> there are and the, the crashing boars. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, if you like punnery, this is mm. definitely the, uh, the story the, for you. It was like a specific breed of pig. Like there were the like, Mummerset blacks. Mummerset blacks. <laughs> I don't know that they're maybe real, but uh, yeah. <laughs> man-eating Mummerset blacks. But it's a really great example of what uh, the fun you can have in audio, because you can create all these sounds, and you can have your heroes chased by giant man-eating boars, and uh, <laughs> it is funny and, and a, little, a little suspenseful. Uh, and you've got these absurd scenes that, if you actually visualized, wouldn't be funny, because it would just be awkward and weird. But like when Nyssa throws her shoes uh, to chase the pigs away, mm-hmm. and... Uh, um, she ends up, because she's walking in brambles on bare feet, getting a piggyback ride from the peasant. <laughs> and, you know, visually that would be just too absurd. But in audio form, it's actually funny and adorable. I loved Osbert Mudstealer. <laughs> He's a, a solid character. <laughs> well, time to brand you then. <laughs> I just love like, the weird casualness of branding. This people. was kind of a Calvin story, wasn't it? Yeah. Just, I, yeah. I, felt I, like... I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I wasn't like... You know, holding my stomach, oh, laughing. It was just fun. It wasn't like Busta got comedy. It was just fun comedy. And Peter Davison yeah. has the perfect doctor for these kind of stories because he is the most straight man of all the doctors, right? Yes. And he, Peter Davison plays that role so well that just mild exasperation is all this absurdity is going on around him. And his slight embarrassment to realize he's a character in this Mummers play at the beginning and he just keeps saying, well, I'm, I'm sure it's a coincidence. And, and Nissa becomes more and more amused by it the more embarrassed he becomes of it <laughs> and starts volunteering him as and this a all, this audience all happened, volunteer. And this all happens just because Nissa doesn't want to go to the 21st century. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that is like, a... I thought that a, was like a weird detail. It's a reference to another Stockbridge story. She's written, got a boyfriend. Yep, written by Paul Carnell. Uh, oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. She's trying to avoid an awkward moment with an ex, which I also think and, is yeah, very funny. And I, w- I was also pleased that it tied in with uh, the Time Warrior from the Third Doctor. Oh, yes. That, I, that was, like, not a thing I was expecting. There's some nice little references there. You've yeah, got a yeah. Rutan in a castle instead of a Santaran in a castle. Mm-hmm. You've got a Rutan doing experiments on human bodies instead of a Santaran doing experiments on human bodies, like in the Santaran experiment. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a kind of thematic mm-hmm. uh, equivalence. There's Explicit reference to Sir Justin and Melanicus yes. from yeah. the Tides of Time, which was adorable. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and of course, Doctor Who's favorite poet, William Blake, appears mm-hmm. again because he talks about uh, the bow of burning gold and the chariot of fire as 
literal objects. Like, these are things I'm going to go get in my TARDIS, my bow of burning gold. I also like that the Rudin's plot is actually really solid. If you're fighting the Santarans, who are a clone army, this idea of being able to clone yourself in somewhat humanoid forms that could fight the Santarans is actually really smart. Solid plan, uh, a, a way to break a stalemate. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes the, the, like the plot of the aliens in a story like this that's mainly just a, a lot of comedy usually is just sort of perfunctory or just like, yeah, yeah, and then they want to take over the Earth. I like that he, he took the time to make sense out of what the Rutans were doing. Absolutely. And then the ship blows up and all our heroes die. The first time I listened to it, I was like, what? <laughs> now I have to buy the next audio, you <laughs> sons of bitches. <laughs> the whole point of the cliffhanger sales. Well, that pretty much wraps up another episode, folks. Uh, come back next time when we will be discussing more Stockbridge stories from the comics and the audios featuring the Fifth Doctor. And... The randomizer, in its infinite wisdom and and great kindness, pulled out of its randomizing butt, (laughs) time lash. We will be talking about the notoriously disliked episode, time lash. The bandrills are coming. (laughs) So. Come back next time. Until then, I am Kelvin. I'm Pat. And I'm Joshua. And we are saying... Get off my world! He is kind of a fascist. I mean, more than a little bit of a fascist. Morbius? Total fascist. Yeah. <laughs> Morbius? <laughs> Total <laughs> What the- not even just yeah, a done. little bit of a fascist. Next you were topic. indignant in a very confusing way there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, you know, this is Morbius. How dare you be Morbius. right about calling him a fascist? <laughs> Morbius had some good ideas. How dare you underappreciate his fascism? <laughs>